fashion, like any other creative art, it often emerges out of times of trauma and crisis. So I think as we emerge out of the pandemic, we don't know just yet what's coming next, but creativity will flourish. Creativity always does after uh, times and during times of, of crisis. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the Home and Design Director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is British journalist, novelist, and biographer, Justine Picardy. While she's written many things in her career, we're focusing today on her latest that beautifully intersects with her fashion expertise. After all, Picardy is the former editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar UK and Town & Country UK, and wrote a celebrated biography on Coco Chanel in 2010. Her latest book is Miss Dior, a story of courage and couture. While you could say it's a book about a fashion house, this time it's told through a lens that focuses on Christian Dior's little appreciated younger sister, Catherine. It beautifully details how the two close siblings came to be so, and how Catherine was so influential in Christian's life, especially after his untimely death at 52, when she became the keeper of his legacy, and the reason much of his archive is so well-preserved today, a fact that should be appreciated by anyone who's visited the traveling exhibition, Christian Dior, Designer of Dreams, now running at the Brooklyn Museum until February. But Catherine was a hero outside of the world of fashion in a big way, and that's probably a surprise to many listening. Catherine was a member of the French Resistance during World War II and heroically survived torture by the Gestapo and a hellish internment at Ravensbrück, a concentration camp for women. I quizzed Justine on her treasure trove of knowledge about this fascinating unsung heroine from her publisher's offices in London. Justine, you've written multiple books over your career. What is the thing that drives you and most of your work? Um, do you know, the core of who I am is sisterhood. And it would go back to my younger sister, Ruth. She died at the age of 33 in 1997. And yet she's still incredibly alive for me. And somebody asked me a question the other day about, you know, when I was younger, did I, when did I first start reading magazines? And the first little magazine and indeed newspaper that I really remember is the ones I used to make with my sister. And when we were children, we would we would write the stories, we would draw the illustrations, we would staple them together. And so we were literally a little editorial team of two <laughs> that was was creating for each other. So I think that idea of of sisterliness is very very primal for me and probably informs the work that I've done as a writer that is the sort of truest part of myself and the way that it relates to this most recent book, Mr. Yore, is it is in part a, an exploration of sisterhood. Obviously, the primal sibling relationship is between a brother and a sister, between Christiane and Catherine Dior, but the sisterliness of the women in the French resistance, her comrades, is also very important to the book. And it's also a story of 
how those women fought alongside each each other. In some cases, they didn't survive, but the ones that did survive were helped by that sense of sisterliness. How did how did you decide to to embark on this book in the first place? How did that come about? Well, in 2010, the first edition of my Chanel biography came out, and I received a invitation from Dior to see if I would like to look at their archives in Paris, which was an extraordinary opportunity. I, I've always loved archives. And in the Chanel book, I was given full access to Chanel's archives, but I also looked at Winston Churchill's archives, the Duke of Westminster's archives, both of whom had relationships with, with Gabrielle Chanel. So to see the the Dior archives in Paris was was an amazing opportunity. But what arose out of that first, you know, session in the archives was actually I said to um, Dior that I thought it would make an incredible exhibition at the V&A in London because I was really struck not only by their exquisite artifacts in the archives. So, the, you know, the beautiful couture gowns. But also there's an interesting relationship between Dior and Great Britain that emerged partly because Britain fell in love with, with Christian Dior's debut collection, The New Look, as did the rest of the world. But Princess Margaret wore Dior and she was this fairy tale princess that symbolized sort of youth at the end of the war. So it took a long time, but after that first conversation, I then set up a meeting between Dior and the VA in London and then slowly that exhibition took place and, and finally happened in 2019. And indeed, a new iteration of that exhibition, Dior Designer of Dreams, has just opened in New York at the Brooklyn Museum. So yeah, to begin with, I think having looked at the archives, I, I saw it, the story um, in a visual way as an exhibition. And then um, a bit of time passed and I just in passing heard about the story of Catherine Dior. And Catherine was Christian Dior's younger sister, his closest friends. They were very, very good friends. And the fact that she just this brief mention to her having been in the French resistance and deported to a concentration camp. And I became fascinated by that and thought, why has nobody told this story before? So I didn't envisage it as a biography of Catherine Dior or a biography of Christian Dior, what I became really obsessed by, and, and that's why the book is called Miss Dior, is the story of this relationship between brother and sister, between Christian and Catherine. The relationship that Catherine had and the, her influence on her brother's conception of, of femininity and beauty, which, which takes hold of the world after the Second World War, but also this idea of the imaginary Miss Dior. So Miss Dior is both a perfume and a very beautiful couture dress. And Miss Dior comes to symbolize this very romantic, heightened vision of femininity in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And I wanted to explore where Miss Dior comes from and how she steps out of the darkness and the shadows and the horrors of the Second World War. So one of the interesting parts of the book is how it opens with the family's sort of dramatic ups and downs before the war, especially about Christian's pre-fashion life. 
I was really tickled to read that he originally wanted to become an architect, but his parents wouldn't allow it. What was the objection to being an architect? So Christian Dior was born in 1905 into a very prosperous family. So in what's known as La Belle Epoque. And his father had inherited a very successful family business that had been set up in the early 19th century. And it was a fertilizer business. And by the time Christian was born, the business was very successful. And and his mother, Madeleine Dior, was married into this successful family. And she wanted to create a really beautiful garden in the family home in, in Granville, which was on a clifftop overlooking the English Channel on the coast of Normandy. And it's rather wonderful that this fertilizer factory supplies both the money, but also the practical means for this garden to be created. And both Christian and his younger sister, Catherine, inherit a love of gardens and gardening from their mother, Madeleine. And Madeleine was rather remote, I suppose, in that era, you know, upper class mothers did not play a particularly hands-on role in bringing up their children. But really the way to her heart, I suppose, was was through the garden. And yet even in this, this beautiful idyllic childhood, there's still the shadow of the First World War and their older brother fights in the First World War. He's the only young soldier in his regiment who's not killed during the terrible battles of the First World War. But then the young Christian, he's not really sure what he wants to do, but at one point he thinks he'd like to be an architect, but his parents say no. What they'd like him to be is, is a diplomat. So he studies politics in Paris. And then, I don't think is a particularly studious um, student, but is clearly very bright. But anyway, after he graduates, he sets up an art gallery. And he really, in fact, he has two art galleries. And he's very, very, he's got a brilliant eye as a gallerist. And he's showing Dali and the Surrealists. But then comes the Wall Street crash and paintings that would now be worth millions hundreds of millions. He he can't even give away. So the gallery goes bankrupt. His father, meanwhile, has also gone bankrupt in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. And Christian has to earn a living. And so he teaches himself to draw and he teaches himself to draw fashion illustrations. And he draws illustrations for newspapers and magazines and also begins to sell them um, on a freelance basis to, to couturiers. At the same time, and just before his father goes bankrupt, their beloved mother, Madeleine, dies of septicemia. So his younger sister, Catherine, loses her mother at the age of 13. So the family, the Dior family, goes from this, this very apparently idyllic existence in the early years of the 20th century into absolute despair and disaster, both on a personal level and that's what's happening in Europe in general. And 
Christian takes it upon himself really to look after Catherine, to support her. And as soon as he is able to, he gets an apartment in Paris and she goes to live with him there in the late 1930s. And he gets her a job at, at a, what's called a maison de mode. And she's selling accessories while also acting as, as his first model. And at this point, he's still freelancing uh, for, for couturiers. He's also beginning to sell illustrations to Harper's Bazaar. And um, and there are pictures in the Dior archives that show her as, as his sort of muse and model. Before we return to Justine, a word from our sponsor, Fritz Hansen. In 2022, Danish design brand Fritz Hansen will celebrate its 150th anniversary. From its humble beginnings in Copenhagen until today, the company has produced some of the most important products of the 20th century and beyond. One of those designs is the Egg Chair by Arne Jakobsen. This often copied masterpiece of Scandinavian design was first created in 1958 for the legendary SAS Royal Hotel that was completed in 1960. As the legend goes, the fastidious designer conceived of the shape by experimenting with wire and plaster in his own garage. Today, the curvy lounger can be covered in fabric or leather with a choice of five different metal base options. Each authentic egg chair has more than 1,100 stitches in each piece, highlighting the craftsmanship that Fritz Hansen has excelled at for, well, centuries. Aside from being a work of high craft, it's also an heirloom you can pass down from one generation to the next perhaps as a family conversation piece for the company's 300th anniversary. To learn more about the egg chair, visit fritzhansen.com. I mean, I, it's interesting you brought up the pandemic earlier that about this sort of time of change, because I was also sort of interested to, to read about Dior's time in the country where he, he was sort of isolated as a way to kind of hide away from it all until he really needed to make some money and and sort of reluctantly return to Paris at that point. Because it feels a little bit like the way that you describe it in the book, it, it rings very true to the sort of pandemic lockdown of, you know, this sort of return to living on living on the land and and sort of tending to a garden and, and, and sort of living that kind of removed life. That's absolutely true. Yes. So in after their father went bankrupt and their mother died. Their father bought a, a little, really little farmhouse in rural Provence near a, a little village called Calion. And at that time, and actually the same as the case now, the biggest crop or one of the biggest crops is actually flowers for the nearby perfume industry in, in grass. So the little farm had was surrounded by rose meadows and and it also they grew jasmine and rose de may is one of the, the main crops for the French luxury perfume industry. So when Christian was teaching himself to draw. He he does retreat. This is in the sort of mid 1930s to his father's little farm in Provence and teaches himself to draw. Then, when the Second World War breaks out, he first of all is called up to the French army, as everybody, every man of a certain age was, and he was put on farm duty because somebody has to, you know keep the food supplies running. And then after the fall of France in 1940, when France is overrun and falls to the Germans and is occupied by the Germans, Christian again retreats to the little farm in Provence. And there with his sister, Catherine, they start growing vegetables. 
as well as roses, because at this point, rationing was in place. The food supplies were really disrupted. The Germans were siphoning off everything from France, from fuel to food, and rationing was enforced. People were suffering from from malnutrition. So they, they literally grow vegetables. They live off the land. And then at the end of 1941, Christian made the decision to return to Paris. He was offered a job by a couturier in Paris and Catherine remains on the farm, but really at that point engages in her first act of resistance, which is that she she goes to Cannes, which is a city you know, on the, the coast, to try and buy a radio. And buying a radio is in itself an act of resistance at this point during the occupation, because she wanted to listen to the banned broadcasts of Charles de Gaulle, who was leading the Free French in London, and the banned BBC broadcasts that were broadcasting those messages. And simply by doing that, she risked imprisonment. But when she goes to buy a radio, she meets and falls in love with a man called Hervé Deschabonnery, who is an early member of the French resistance. And they fall in love and he recruits her into his resistance network. But she does continue um, working on on the farm at the same time. When we talk about Catherine and, and this sort of incredible experience and incredible bravery that she had to, you know, find to do the things that she did and survive the, the way that she did. Do you think there's a part of her early life or from her brother and the, his experiences of surviving the Great War that you think gave her a little bit of that courage that kind of helped her to become the woman that would, would do those things? It's such a good question. It's really hard to know, isn't it, where people find courage from. And We've all lived through, you know, the last more than a year and a half now where we've had to find ways of being resilient. But but then, you know, it, it takes another enormous leap to put your own life at risk in the way that Catherine did by joining the resistance. I don't know where it came from other than the fact that she clearly was very principled. She believed in freedom. She believed in democracy at a time when women didn't even have a vote in France. And at a time when very, very few people were showing that kind of courage in France. So when she joined the resistance, there were probably only 100,000 active members of the resistance in France out of a population of 40 million. So she was very, very, very unusual. Who knows where that came from? But it's certainly, it was there. And she found something within herself where that that belief in freedom outweighed her fear. And she ran risks every single minute of every single day from the moment she joined the resistance all the way through 1942, 43, 44. In 1944, she moves to Paris, um, where she's still working for the resistance. She's living with Christian in his apartment in Paris. He's he's protect, sheltering her and other members of her resistance network. And then in July 1944, she's betrayed by a collaborator, a French collaborator, and is arrested and then tortured by the Gestapo in Paris. And 
at this point, you know, she goes on not just one, but two occasions through the most brutal and terrible experiences of torture. And she does not give away a single person. She saves her brother, her brother's life. She saves her best friend's life, um, who's like a sister to her. She saves the lives of everybody who is who she knows. And that kind of courage is so rare and unusual. And she's just, you know, she's a young woman in her early 20s. And then she's deported on the last train out of Paris. And it, it the tragedy is such that at this point, the Allies were fighting their way across France. They'd already landed on the beaches of Normandy, you know, not far from where the Dior children grew up in their childhood. And they were fighting across France, meeting really tough German opposition. But it was 10 days before the liberation of Paris. And on the 15th of August, she's deported on the last train out of Paris. Christian does everything he can to save Catherine, but she's on a train with about 400 other women who had been being deported to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And Christian tries to get her off the train. He tries every contact he's got, but nothing works. And she crosses that border into Germany and literally darkness falls. Nobody knows what's become of her at this point. But she arrives at Ravensbrück concentration camp, which is literally a hell on earth. And while I was researching the book, in every part of the book, I tried to go to the place where, you know, Christian and Catherine had been, whether it was their home, their childhood home, the apartment they shared in Paris, um, the little farm in Provence. And I did go, have to go to Ravensbrück and then follow her her journey from Ravensbrück to a series of three slave labour camps because that was the only way to find out what happened to her. And in those archives, because the Nazis were very good at keeping records, I could find the traces of, of Catherine's journey. And I and I went to, to Ravensbrook and I suppose it it forms the sort of the dark heart of the book. But there in Ravensbrook, and a place which I really did not want to go to, but ended up going to not once, but twice. I found, I thought I would only find, you know, despair um, and and misery and the worst aspects of humanity. But much to my surprise, I found talismans of hope and resilience because the women there continue to engage of active resistance. And one of the ways they did that was to make these tiny little secret artifacts or talismans. And for example, a tiny, I found a tiny little cherry stone that was carved in the shape of a handbag and it had a little heart on it or a tiny little heart, embroidered heart, embroidered with roses. And these were ways of defying this Nazi regime, which tried to reduce everybody that the Nazis believed to be subhuman. It showed 
that in fact that humanity was still alive in them. And I was so moved by that. And in the book, I tried to incorporate images, both of these beautiful little objects that had been secretly made, but also the drawings that had been made in secret by the women in Ravensbrook. And in these drawings, you see them kind of taking hold of of their own identity again. And I found that incredibly inspiring. And it it formed, much to my surprise, a way for me to be able to think about how it was that Christian in the aftermath of of these of his sister's terrible experiences could still find a way of believing in in hope or 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 magic and when it comes to the events that you know led up to her being captured she was in a group called F2 that was if forgive me if i'm incorrect mostly women uh in this sort of division that were a lot of messengers and people writing sort of harrowing journeys on bicycle. Can you tell me a little bit about F2 and what that was? Yes. So when we think about, at least when I first thought about the resistance, I thought it was sort of one unified network, but it wasn't. It was fragmented. It was just different people in different places finding ways to resist. And F2 was one of the earliest groups in the resistance. And it was actually set up originally by um, some Polish officers who had found themselves behind enemy lines during the fall of France and had set up a, a little resistance network. And then they were reporting to Polish intelligence in London, but also to British intelligence in London. But they started recruiting French people. And of that group, by the time when it, it became larger, it had about two and a half thousand active members, of whom twenty five percent were women. And and yes, what they were doing was intelligence gathering. So they were finding information on German troop movements. They were um, acting as couriers for messages between the French resistance and. British intelligence and the allies. And Catherine, like many of the the young women involved, was undertaking these very, very long journeys by bicycle, partly because there was no fuel. And I'm (laughs) talking at at a time when we've got fuel shortages in the UK for various reasons. So, So, you know, fuel was rations, nobody had any fuel. So, they were they were cycling everywhere, but also women were less likely. They, they, you know, less likely perhaps to be stopped. And th- when they were on their bicycles, they could take little back routes and try and remain unnoticed. But when Catherine was finally arrested, as it happened, she was on her bicycle in Paris. And there is something, it's interesting you picked up on the idea of the girl on the bicycle, because that really was a very vivid image in my mind as I was writing about Catherine and and her sisters, you know, and I use that metaphorically, but her female comrades in the resistance, they they were on their bicycles. And and when she later gave a statement about what happened to her, you know, she said they they I was on my bicycle, they seized me, they bundled me in the back of the car, they blindfolded me, they took my bicycle. And the bicycle was the, you know, that was what had given her freedom and it was taken away from her and that was the beginning, you know, of the capture. And when it comes to the man that she met and fell in love with who, re- who recruited her, can you tell me a little bit about 
what happened to their relationship and what happened to him? Well, their relationship survived and continued. Um, he was 12 years older than her. He was exactly the same age as, as her brother, Christian. He'd been in the same year as Christian studying politics. And he was an early supporter of Charles de Gaulle. He was married with three children when they met, but it sounds as if his and his his wife was also in the resistance, as was his mother. But it sounds as if his relationship with his wife, although they were, you know, comrades and colleagues in the resistance, it sounds as if their marriage to they were already kind of separated by by the time he he meets Catherine, and he like Christian didn't know whether she would survive her imprisonment in Germany. For all he knew, she could have been killed, you know, the moment she arrived in in Germany. But she saved his life when she was tortured by not giving his name. And when she returned from Germany, finally, at the end of May 1945, so several weeks after the end of the war, Christian met her at the train station in Paris. She was unrecognisable because of she was so emaciated, her head had been shaved, and Christian devastated when he met her. But then, really, I think thanks to Christian and to Hervé, she was sort of nursed back to health. And there's a wonderful picture of, of them together in, in Provence that summer. And Hervé and Christian are on either side of, of Catherine. And she slowly sort of recovered her physical strength again, and then returned to Paris, lived with Christian again in Paris, and with Hervé set up a business dealing in cut flowers at the flower market in Paris, while also she took over the rose growing business on her flowers, on her father's farm, and she grew roses and jasmine, and she and Hervé remained together for the rest of his life, he died in 1989, and ran the business together, the flower growing business, the rose growing business, but they never married. She continued to be Miss Dior, Catherine Dior. And she was a woman that continued to live life on her own terms, in a very remarkable woman in that sense. And she continued to grow her roses, which were used for Dior perfumes, until she died at the age of 90. And she died in, in June. And the, her, her harvest of May roses, she brought that last harvest in herself. She oversaw the harvest as she always did in May and then, and then died in June at the age of 90, having continued to be an extraordinarily resilient and brave woman who believed in freedom and democracy. When it comes to those post-war years that you mentioned, Catherine became a keeper of Christian's legacy in many ways. What was it like for Catherine to be that guardian of her beloved brother's work after his death? Well, he died unexpectedly of a heart attack in 1957 at the age of 52. And he made, in his will, Catherine is, is called his moral heir, which is such an interesting phrase because Catherine kind of represents a moral compass. Pe women like Catherine re represented a moral compass for France through 
their work for the resistance. But I think he, he sh- and I think that that Christian, by calling her his moral heir in his will, is kind of acknowledging that. But what it meant in practical terms was that she kept everything that related to his artistic legacy. She preserved it. So all his drawings, um, everything in his house um, in the south of France, which is called La Colle Noire. And she ensured that what had been their childhood home in Normandy, which had ended up in the hands of the town council after their father went bankrupt. She, it was thanks to her that that became the Christian Dior Museum in, in Granville in the 1990s. And she was the first president of, of the museum. And so, you know, the, the, the dresses, the drawings. So she really ensured his legacy and heritage was preserved so that when Dior was bought by Bernard Arnault and became part of the kind of powerhouse that is LVMH. The what survives in the archives, a lot of it is there, that is there is thanks to to Catherine protecting it. She ensured that his memoir, his autobiography, um, Dior by Dior or Dior et moi remained in print as well. So she was incredibly loyal and yet she never talked about really about her own achievements. So she received the highest honours in, in terms of for, for courage and bravery, both from France, but also from the United Kingdom and indeed Poland because of the Polish links with F2. But she'd never, you know, on the rare occasions that she would talk publicly, it would either be to, to talk about her, her brother's genius or... Um, once a year, she would be at the, you know, the, the kind of annual commemoration of those who died for the cause of the resistance. So it really, but it really is thanks to Catherine that we have so many of Christian's early drawings and um, that we know about his development as a, as a genius when it comes to to couture she she kept those safe and obviously after you work on a book like this for so long and and you you have to you yourself as you mentioned you have to go to you you had to visit ravensbrook twice and you have to sort of delve into this dark and very intimate sort of part of someone's life uh, have you given any thought to uh your next project <laughs> perhaps something a little bit lighter yes it's funny with books I mean, funny is the wrong word, but um, books for me, this is my sixth book. They just sort of, somehow the subject arrives. It's like they find me (laughs) sometimes rather than me finding them. And I do have the beginnings of another book is already stirring within me. And I often find that each book to a degree, leads me to the next one. So Chanel led me to Dior and Dior, Miss Dior, has led me to a series of gardens. There is the most, one of the most memorable places that I've ever been to in the world is is in my book, which is the Rose Garden in Ravensbrook which isn't publicized. You have to go there to see it, but it's these roses that were planted by the survivors in memory of 
you know, those who did not survive. And it's planted on a mass grave. And the, the roses were specially bred. And they were bred by a French woman to survive these very harsh northern winters. It's 80 miles north of Berlin, and they're called Resurrection. And there was something so miraculous about these beautiful roses. So just as roses run all the way through, these rose gardens appear in different parts of of Misty Ore. I feel that these roses have led me, pushed me <laughs> towards an, my next book. So all I will say is that it has roses in it. Thank you to Justine and her publishers for making this episode happen. You can find Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, wherever books are sold. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. 